Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door. You can schedule sessions based on what's most convenient for you, and you don't have to wait weeks to be seen. And BuzzFeed Daily listeners can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed. Go to Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed for 65% off your first month. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Peacock streaming new movies every week at PeacockTV.com. We'll have the Twilight Saga. I never felt more alive. Selma. We must march. Plus Bad Boys 1 and 2 and Shrek 1 and 2. So good to be home. Tons of blockbuster hits you can't not watch. Sign up at PeacockTV.com. What grows in the forest? Our imagination and our family bonds. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Tinder is partnering with Lyft to give dates rides. We need to discuss the shrimp tail cinnamon toast crunch scandal. And Vanessa Wong joins us to discuss anti-Asian racism. It's March 24th, 2021. Hey friends, I'm Casey Rackham. And I'm Zach Stafford. Welcome to BuzzFeed Daily. And Casey, you're going to start off with a dating story. And I just want to jump right in because it is almost spring. She's ready for a date. And I think you have good news for me. (laughs) I'm so ready. My friend asked me if I'm going to start dating soon now that the vaccines are rolling out. And I'm like, once I'm vaccinated... And then once my mom's vaccinated, because she's the last person in the family to be vaccinated, then I'm out. I'm going she's out. out here in these streets, honey. Look out. I already redownloaded all the apps. I spend yeah. a few minutes a day going through them. And I'm loving that people are putting hashtag vaccinated on things. It's oh so my God. Amazing. Funny. Okay. I haven't, I haven't redownloaded mine yet, but I have to tell you something that I think that I'm probably not going to do. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. And that's our news for today because Tinder will soon let users send their date a Lyft without leaving the app. There isn't a set launch date for the new feature, but all of Lyft's safety protocols, like sharing your location with family and friends, will be available for those gifted rides. There have been some drawbacks to this, though. A few scenarios execs ran through included if a ride was called and then a date was canceled. In addition, the finer details of ordering, paying, and tipping are still unknown. (laughs) It's, you know, could you imagine being uh, expecting to go on a date and someone sends you a car and they're not there? That would be tragic. That's tragic. And also, like, I don't want someone to do that for me. And I don't want to do that for someone else. Yeah, I don't need someone knowing my address at pickup. That's my number one thing. And then also, I'm just thinking about like, I can take care of myself. Thank you. Does that sound that sounds like someone who's probably not ready to start dating? (laughs) Casey, we're gonna need to unpack that before you download uh, Bumble again. Yeah, we need to go there. But Do you know what I would use this for? So let's just like take like, tinder out of it i would love to just like send cars to my friends houses and make them come over you know like if they're too tired to come over and i'll be like listen there's a car outside your apartment right now you can go in with your pajamas whatever bring a bottle of wine I'm it's sorry. gonna take you to my home i would get in the car because that is a baller move i mean that's hot if i look out my door and there is a car especially a black suburban and a man saying come over guess what i'm doing coming over good day <laughs> 
<laughs> all right. So the next story has been blowing up all over the past week, and it's time we talk about the man who says he found shrimp tails in a cinnamon toast crunch box. There are so many layers to the story. First, the man who found the shrimp in the box is Jensen Carp of California. He pinged Cinnamon Toast Crunch and let them know what happened. Then the cereal brand came back and said that they weren't shrimp tails, but actually, quote, an accumulation of the cinnamon sugar that sometimes can occur when ingredients aren't thoroughly blended. However, the internet is pretty positive that these are actually shrimp tails. In fact, Carp says that he went on to find more strange items in that cereal box, including a piece of string, a weird cinnamon-covered pea thing, and mysterious black items cooked into the individual squares as well. Cinnamon Toast Crunch says they're launching an investigation, but that they're confident this did not happen at one of their facilities. In case the story hasn't hooked you yet, Carp is married to Danielle Fischel Carp, who played Topanga in the 90s series Boy Meets World. Yeah, we're like, you know, the story's been going on for a couple days or so it feels like, but the real, the new news is that he's married to Topanga from Boy Meets World, which people are just like absolutely losing it over because this is a wild story. But now it's making people think like, oh, he's just doing it like as a funny, like comedic story. And Zach, I just want to say this right now. I don't think that he's lying because at this point, if they wanted to, if he was lying, Cinnamon Toast Crunch could sue him for all the yes. damage he's done to their brand. But no. And also another thing that I want to bring up, folks, if you don't really know what gaslighting is, what Cinnamon Toast Crunch has done to this man is gaslighting. <laughs> because literally he has shown us a picture of shrimp tails. And then Cinnamon Toast Crunch said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> When I saw that picture, because I saw the tweets, I was like, well, let me find the picture. I opened that thing up and I said, Mama, this is a shrimp tail. There's no way this is not a shrimp tail. That is fully a shrimp tail. And according to the New York Times, this is not General Mills' first time dealing with shrimp in their products before. Like, it's happened before with some blueberries or something. So, like, how are shrimps getting involved in cereal? I do not understand. Make it make sense. You know what? It doesn't make sense, but it's quite a story. I mean, at least 2021 is fascinating. It's like a left fields all the time fascinating uh, and awful moving on we're gonna get more serious for our interview portion today last week a white man shot and killed eight people in the massage parlors in the greater atlanta area most of those victims were asian women it's unfortunately part of a growing trend of violence we've seen against asian americans since the start of the pandemic today we're joined by buzzfeed news reporter vanessa wong she wrote the piece my life was shaped by anti-asian racism i can't hide my pain anymore Hi, Vanessa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So first, I want to say thank you for being here. This is a beautiful and painful piece. It's also very personal. There's so much of you in it. I want to ask, how are you doing? How did it feel to put this out? What's the reaction been like? It was an extremely painful week. It's been an extremely painful year, let's be honest. I mean, we've all gone through so much over the last 12 months. And, you know, on top of the pain of the pandemic, BLM, all of the chaos and devastation that um, the pandemic has caused to the country in terms of lives lost, um, jobs lost, you know, everything like that. I think the Asian community has been dealing with a violence problem and a harassment problem that's gone more or less under the radar for months and only managed to attract national attention after a, you know, large scale tragedy in Atlanta. And I think the feeling that so many of us have is like, we've been screaming for help for months 
and no one was listening. And so it's very hard to process. I think like there's this compounding element of feeling that being Asian in America also means being invisible. And so, you know, we're kind of taught growing up to like keep our heads down so that we don't draw unwanted attention, keep trudging along. If you work hard enough, you will survive, right? But that also means that our pain has been completely unacknowledged until this point. And that makes it very hard to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, as as a Black person in America, I I hear you so many ways. And I've been thinking about you so much these past few days because, you know, when George Floyd happened last summer, what I struggled with and what I want to ask you about is like, I got so many people reaching out because of this one inflection point. They were like, how are you doing? What's going on? You have this moment where you're like, well, yeah, this is tough. It's awful. But like, my life has been like this every day and you've never asked how I've been doing. And I know that you've been working on this piece since before last week's attacks in Atlanta because this has been going on for so long. So talk to us about the other Asian folks that you talked to. How, how are they managing this kind of dichotomy here of like, we've been going through this, but now you're asking me, how am I doing? The sense I have is that a lot of people are relieved right now. It's, you know, I think we're we're sort of um, maybe in different moments in our civil rights movements, right? But like, I think a lot of my friends and relatives have expressed like, oh, finally, people are paying attention. You know, there's that sense of relief that like, you know, not to be like, extremely dramatic, but like, maybe we won't all die alone and unnoticed. We feel like that's sadly, that's all we can ask for at this point. Um, and maybe we'll have the confidence or feel like we have the support to, um, expect a little bit more later on. There was this outpouring of support last week and I felt very loved by people and also realizing that until that point, how alone I had felt, you know, it it really Mm. put it into stark contrast. Mm. And, you know, in your piece, you, pinpointed the uptick in violence against Asian Americans to February of 2020, which obviously coincides with the COVID-19 pandemic. What did people have to say about that? What did you find out there? I know that last winter in New York City, Chinatown, all of the businesses were reporting a major slump because no one was coming out to eat anymore. So there is the combined effect of like, you know, people had sort of heard about this virus. I think they were scared of eating out in general, but I think there was this added layer of xenophobia that was really devastating to that community's business. And, you know, then when President Trump um, started kind of weaponizing his rhetoric against China and calling it Kung Flu and China virus. There was this correlation, let's put it that way, between that and some of the language that was used against Asians in, you know, incidents of harassment and, you know, some incidents of of actual violent attacks. New York City, Chinatown is a very old neighborhood just in terms of how it's built. And all of those buildings are tiny, right? So any sort of like flexibility that you might have for outdoor dining or indoor dining really were not very useful to those businesses. And I just sort of saw, you know, this ethnic enclave that was very important to new immigrants, to people like me, second gen kids in New York City, who felt that that was part of what they could consider home in in this city, being ravaged by the pandemic and no one really noticing. And there was not much to do about it, right? And there was very little interest that I could detect from public officials in trying to help them out. I want to go back to something that you said at the top of the interview, where you said that the Asian American community often feels invisible. And one story that you told was that of a Filipino man who was slashed in the face on the subway. Your description of what happened to him was heartbreaking, but what stands out is the fact that he seemed just as hurt by the indifference of bystanders. 
as he was by the crime itself. It's one of the main points of your piece. The willingness to look away from violence against Asian Americans. Is that also something you heard from a lot of people? Yeah. I mean, Noel's story was absolutely heartbreaking because, you know, he was on the subway. This guy was kicking his backpack. He moved. The guy continued to kick his backpack. And when he said, what's wrong with him, he took out a box cutter and slashed his face and he was bleeding all over himself, exited the subway, had to make it to a station booth all by himself. Like, you know, it's like living a nightmare. I mean, he thought he was going to die. So, you know, he's hoping that someone will notice him and reach out their hands. And no one did. No one even asked how he was, you know. Then there is a flurry of media attention after the fact. But at that point, it's too late, right? And that was a similar thread through a lot of the interviews I did were people experiencing incidents of harassment or violence that were less severe than what Noel went through, which was so intense. But like people just let it happen. You know, it's hard to say like if that's a uniquely Asian experience, but I think that Asian people feel it very deeply just because of the pre-existing sense of invisibility. That when you're hurting and when you're in danger as well, people still don't rise to reach out a hand and offer their help. And so, yeah, I mean, like in New York, like everything is so public, right? Like so many exchanges happen on the subway. So I think it's just very shocking to people when they are punched or they are being verbally harassed and no one bothers to just de- help to de-escalate the situation, I think, is is at the very least what they're hoping for. And so there's an organization called Hollaback that's trying to spread awareness of what bystanders can do if they're ever witnessing harassment, right? Like part of it is just sort of like helping to de-escalate by interrupting that exchange and saying, hey, like you can throw in something random, like, hey, what's what's the timer? Like, you know, what's the next stop? Or I'm lost. Can you help give me directions? You know, or taking a video, something as simple as taking a video can help spread awareness, you know? And if you don't feel safe, you can ask someone else to help. You can call out for help just to draw other people's attention to what's happening. And then if you do feel safe, you know, I guess that's like the most direct interferences you can, you can step in yourself and break it up. But I think, um, you know, none of this people I spoke to um, experienced any of, of that. Yeah. And what people don't think about with identity-based, you know, violence is that it's not just about the physical touch of someone else, but it's about how it destabilizes your sense of safety and space and home and community very quickly in an instant moment. And I feel like that's what you're speaking to right now. Correct. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break here, everyone. And we'll be right back with more with Vanessa Wong from BuzzFeed News. Stay tuned. Fit. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com/slash 2022. The NFL is back, and the NFL app has you covered. So get ready for football all season long and just tap into the NFL app. NFL, baby, let's make it happen. Just tap in to watch your local and primetime games all season, now through Super Bowl 56. For the end zone, touchdown! Get up-to-the-minute news, videos, highlights, stats, and more on all your favorite teams and rookies to watch. Welcome to the NFL! Download to your mobile device today at nfl.com mobile or in your app store. 
Certain restrictions and data rates may apply. It's time to gear up for the NFL postseason. Yes, Head over to NFLShop.com today for the largest assortment of officially licensed gear. I need it! NFL Shop is your destination for jerseys, t-shirts, headwear, and more. Oh, you're sweet with it! Come back after the game for the best selection of NFL gear anywhere. How you like that, baby? Rep your team pride with styles fit for the whole family. To shop now, go to NFLShop.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Vanessa Wong about her piece on anti-Asian violence in America. So another point you bring up is the difficulty in actually prosecuting these crimes as hate crimes. You point out the idea of the, quote, model minority myth. Can you explain what that is and why that makes this so complicated when we're thinking about identity-based hate? Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, like the model minority myth being Asian Americans have somehow gotten past racism you know, we've transcended it. It doesn't apply to us anymore. But the problem is that Asian Americans, one, aren't a monolith, right? <laughs> and also, I think in relation to hate crimes, there's this, um, the model minority myth makes people more skeptical that Asian Americans can be victims of racism. So it's like, is this what happened? Were they really victims of racism? Was this a hate crime? You know, a hate crime being like a bias-based crime in which the bias is race. And and that's so hard to prove, you know, like unless an attacker is verbalizing very directly, I hate Asian people and I'm doing this because I hate Asian people. There's very little that a prosecutor might be able to do to successfully bring a hate crime charge. But, you know, I think the other thing that I believe is that the use of the word hate crime, I think, from a lot of Asian American people just talking about this topic has less to do with sort of the legal aspect of it, whether this is actually prosecuted as a hate crime and more to do with just asking American society at large you know, people, government, advocates, like any anybody that's listening to them to just acknowledge that they are being hurt by hate and racism as well and to help do something about it. Um, and it's actually an uphill battle, I think. You know, I've after I published this story, I did receive emails from people asking me not to make this a race issue <laughs> and um, suggesting that I was um, perpetuating hate by doing so. I, I, I don't even know where to go. <laughs> I, I am sorry that you received those. And uh, because that is a sad fact that happens after reporters uh, write about um, facts. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to see why people want to, like, disentangle that possibility. Um, no, it's not hard to understand. Why, it's, hard. <laughs> it's hard to stomach. Let's put it that way. Mm. So we mentioned this earlier, you started writing this piece before last week's attacks in Atlanta, but some of the actions of officials there, like their unwillingness to classify this as a hate crime or them taking a mass murderer at his word that this wasn't a hate crime, those actions underpin everything you've laid out in this piece. There's been a lot of outrage. Do you think this is possibly helping wake America up to this issue? (laughs) I think it's helping to wake some of America up to this issue. And I also think that there's a possibility that this will be another flash of outrage that eventually dies down. Um, You know, I'm not exactly sure what happens to this issue when advocates get tired, when rallies stop, you know, when there's less of a news event to cover. 
I, I don't know what happens then. I mean, my newsfeed is still just full of really horrible <laughs> and violent things. They're still happening. You know, there's still people being attacked. For example, I went to a rally on Sunday in um, Union Square in New York City. It was a Black Asian solidarity rally. People marched down to Chinatown afterwards to convene with another rally that was going on. A woman who was going to rally with her child and was holding up a sign was um, attacked uh, and punched in the face. The attacker asked her for her sign, stepped on it. I mean, you know, so it just felt like, you know, there's this moment now when everyone's paying attention and then even with like, as that moment is unfurling, we're seeing another woman being attacked. And just, so it just feels so endless, you know? Um, and I think that there is more attention to it, but I think that um, there's so much craziness in our country right now that I'm not sure with how long people can sustain their attention on any one issue. Mm. And it's brought all the way back to the invisibility. Correct. Yep. Yeah, I think um, Congresswoman Grace Mung put it really beautifully at a rally in late February. And she said, you know, we've been taught our entire life just to fit in, just to be quiet, don't speak up, be invisible. If you're invisible enough, you'll be seen as American. And we're just seeing now that that's not true. Like we haven't been able to erase ourselves into assimilation and, you know, any sort of like um, internal narrative that we have to stay invisible, I think people are starting to question now. Before we let you go, because I know we're almost out of time, I want to read a line from your piece that I think is just really, really, really good, and it kind of speaks to this. And you write, for so long, we've thought keeping our heads down, being invisible in America might help us gain acceptance. But racial invisibility is a myth. Not knowing whether these crimes were motivated by racism, trying to glaze over that possibility only preserves the myth of invisibility, and it makes it too easy to move on without making anything better. To know is to shatter that myth. And you know, I've been talking to a lot of my fellow POC friends about this week and about how do we all like fix this? Because as you just said, we know that like we'll have a moment and then it goes away and people forget. And you brought up the Black and uh, Asian rally this past weekend. So do you think like kind of the move forward is more coalition building like that? Is that the way we can kind of help figure this stuff out if we all come together? Yeah, 100%. It was really beautiful to go to that rally. I felt a moment of strength. When I was there, it was touching to see so many people come together for this cause. And one of the things that was said at that rally was that so many perceptions that people have of one another in this country were formed by white people. And that in order for any of us to <laughs> um, move past that and, you know, create a future in which we are more equal, we have to get beyond that. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of coalition building between communities for so long now. But I think like the urgency to do that is is very clear right now. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that the necessity to move forward that way is very clear right now. For sure. For sure. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being here today and sharing space with us and just letting us listen. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. That's it for today. Come back and join us tomorrow. And remember, if you give me the option to send rides to friends so they can come over, I will be exploring that option. <laughs> be sure to subscribe to BuzzFeed Daily on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to come back for more of what you love about BuzzFeed, coming to you daily. Hold up. 
If dog people made dog food, it wouldn't be sold in a 50-pound bag in the hardware aisle by the shoe polish. It would actually be food. It would be made with real, fresh meat and veggies gently cooked to preserve their nutritional value. You know, like food. The Farmer's Dog was created by dog people who cook and deliver fresh, healthy food. Try the Farmer's Dog and get fresh, pre-portioned meals tailored to your dog's needs. Tell us about your dog, build your plan, and get 50% off at thefarmersdog.com slash listen. That's thefarmersdog.com slash listen. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. What grows in the forest? Our imagination and our family bonds. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.